to know Christ and to make Him known. We invite you into the same journey with us now as we open the scriptures and as we ask God to teach us and reveal Himself to us in His Word. Thanks for stopping by. I want to invite you to open up your Bibles to Daniel chapter 2. Um, while you're doing that, you may have this morning as you came in, uh, checked in your first file. By the way, first files, if you're a regular tender or member here at church, you can have one of these. They're the two like wooden things out in the, um, in the narthex and they've got a bunch of folders. And it's just an easy way for us to share information with you. And you may have picked up there or on our Welcome Center, or on the Coffee Center, a new pictorial directory. We did this one in-house. I'm so thankful to Lisa Aiding and to Paula Driscoll and some of our staff to help put this together. So now you know like when people's birthdays are, and now you get to see, oh, hey, that's that name with that face and all that kind of stuff. We also have missionary partners in here. So if you want to get like a visual on who they are, you can look at them in there and find that out. Now, you may have that with you. You may put it away for right now. I know the photos are great, though. Um, so there's that. The other thing I wanted to mention um, is, is I just wanted to say thank you, church family. You're still turning to Daniel chapter 2, so I can say thank you. I, I want to say thank you for being the body of Christ for this weekend and for these last several days and caring for Rochelle and her family, the Schaefer family. Um, so thankful for how, how so many did so much, and I'm sure I only know a fraction of it, to show love and care um, to them. And I just, I just want you to know that speaks volumes. I, I cannot tell you how many conversations I had yesterday with people who were here for the funeral, with, with friends and family, uh, pe people who know the Schaefers, and they just, they just said, wow, you guys care well. You care well. Um, church, thank you for being the body of Christ. Thank you for caring about others. Meaningful love and care is a powerful display of the gospel. It's an absolutely powerful display of the gospel. So keep loving one another. Amen? All right. Daniel chapter 2. <laughs> We're going to pray before we jump into this. Uh, but what a gift God's word is to us. Father, thank you for these words. God, thank you for inspiring this text, for, for giving to people long ago words of truth, words of prophecy, words of instruction, and, and just practical, tangible examples of what it means to walk in an ungodly world as we follow the God who is over all. God, would you give us wisdom would you fill us with your power today to be the hands and feet of Jesus in the area that you have placed us in? We pray this for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Daniel chapter 2. Now, Daniel chapter 2, we, we've started recently a, a sermon series on the book of Daniel, looking at kings and kingdoms, which is really what Daniel and Revelation are all about. Um, so last week, we looked at Daniel and, and his friends being taken from their home in Jerusalem, carted away thousand or so miles to the place of Babylon, to the world center at that time. Here we find in Daniel chapter 2 that it's, it's in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign that he has dreams. And, and how and why does God give dreams? We'll talk about that today. Um, there's two words I want 
to give you to frame what we're going to talk about. The first one is wisdom, and the second word is power. All right, wisdom and power. That's one framing you can use for today. Um, those are two themes that we'll talk about. Uh, the other frame that I'm going to give you to help us understand what is um, 49 verses, which is a lengthy chunk of text. The other frame I want to give you is I'm going to break this down into five parts. And each part has a significant theological center to that series of verses. So as we go through, we'll look at a section, we'll read it, I'll point out the theological center, and I'll go ahead and talk about some practical applications while we're right there in that passage, all right? It's a long bulk of text. And so I want to break this up uh, for us today. Uh, I also will not ask you to, to stand for the scripture reading because it is 49 verses long. And so you, you stood quite a bit already today. So let's begin here in, in Daniel chapter two. Now, what we're going to find in this lengthy story is that God is going to reveal elements of the future to a pagan ruler through dreams that were not able to be interpreted by the quote unquote wise men of of the day. Uh, it actually, in 26 times in chapter 2, there are words like reveal, show, declare, make known. All right? W one of the things the, the writer is just hammering home is God is revealing, God is showing, God is declaring, God is making known, but he's doing all this. And what we're going to find is that the king goes, I've seen this dream, you're revealing, you're declaring, but I don't understand. And so God is going to, in his grace, reveal himself and make clarification through Daniel to this majestic ruler on earth. Scripture reveals that the sovereign Lord reveals himself. In fact, if it were not for God revealing himself, we would not understand much about anything. We love because he first loved us. The scripture says the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the works of his hands. Everywhere we look, when we hear and we experience revelation from God, it's because of God's mercy and God's grace in our lives. It's because of God's redemptive initiative that we can respond to who he is and what he has done. The power for wisdom in understanding in the scripture comes to Daniel by one way and one way only, the God of heaven. And this God alone is sovereign, merciful, and present with his people. Which is very important when we think about these are people who are in exile for a pretty long time because they had said, God, we don't want to follow you. God takes them to exile, but God is still with his people. He still cares. Now, um, in chapters 2 through 7, we have a structural change that happens at verse 4. We go from Hebrew to Aramaic. All right, and, and for those of you who don't care, I'm, I'm sorry, I'll give you this anyway. It's, it's two languages, you know. It, it's one small thing to tuck away because there's only a couple sections in um, the Bible that are in Aramaic. One of them is here. It's the longest one that's here. And at this point in time, Aramaic is the, is the international language of the day. So you have to ask, okay, what's going on here? Why is this, why is this going? And, and the change happens when a group of the Chaldeans, who were people from Babylon, they, they speak to the king. In verse 4, that's where Aramaic begins. But likely, uh, there's a bunch of reasons scholars talk about, but, but likely one of the prime reasons for this switching to Aramaic is that God is going to be working for a season of time here with a pagan ruler about pagan kingdoms. Uh, and then he's also going to talk about, picking up in chapter 8, chapter 7, chapter 8, about God's faithfulness to Israel 
in the middle of their exile. So chapters two through seven essentially describe the rise, decline, and the fall of the great empires of the world. And I said this last week, but it bears repeating. The central question, one of the central questions that the Bible talks about is not whether there is a God, all right? People of the day, they understood that there were gods. You know, they, they, they worshiped gods. There was no such thing really as atheism because they realized you were all made and designed to worship something. So if the God you serve is not the God in heaven, it's going to be the God of Baal, or it's going to be the God of Ashtoreth, or it's going to be the sun God down in Egypt. All these places are very, very um, religious. They're just not always religious in the right way. So the question, according to the biblical text, is not, is there a God? The question is, is which God do you serve? And we can ask that same question today. Even amongst atheists today, you can ask and look, and you can see by how, they, how we spend our time, our talent, and our treasure that we do serve things. Oftentimes, we serve ourselves. We're oftentimes the replacement God for Yahweh. But the fundamental question is, which God do you serve? And God is going to reveal himself to the most powerful king on earth and basically ask the same question over this chapter and over the next several chapters. Nebuchadnezzar, whom do you serve? Because you can be the most powerful king in all of the known world at that day, and you can be an absolute mess when God gives you a dream at night. Because you have no idea how to make heads or tails of what is going on. One of the things my parents would do when I was a kid, and I promise we will read the text in just a moment. One of the things my parents will do, uh, would do when I was a kid is if there was something that they did not want us to understand, they would begin speaking in French. And all of a sudden you'd hear, parler du français and chocolat and café and baguette. And those are the only fromage. We, we used to take uh, actual family photos and instead of saying cheese, we would say fromage. And that extends the entire vocabulary of French that I know. Oh, we. Oui. Yes, I know we. Oui. Um, that was it. But my parents would go on because they had spent some time in another country and they, they knew French enough to disguise from us what was actually going on that they wanted to talk about, but they did not want our ears to be privy to. Here, God is going to essentially speak in a different language of sorts with this dream. But not only that, he's going to bring Daniel along and give him clarity of this vision so that Nebuchadnezzar knows what God is trying to tell him. And he knows that it's not because of his wisdom or his power, but because of Yahweh's. Read with me, please, chapter 2 of Daniel. In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams that troubled him, and sleep deserted him. So the king gave orders to summon the diviner priests, mediums, sorcerers, and Chaldeans to tell the king his dream. When they came, they stood before the king, and he said to them, I have had a dream, and I am anxious to understand it. The Chaldeans spoke to the king, Aramaic begins here, may the king live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will give the interpretation. The king replied to the Chaldeans, my word is final. If you don't tell me the dream and its interpretation, you will be torn limb from limb and your houses will be made a garbage dump. But if you make the dream and its interpretation known to me, you'll receive gifts of reward and great honor from me. So make the dream and its interpretation known to me. 
They answered a second time, may the king tell the dream to his servants and we will give the interpretation. The king replied, I I know for certain you are trying to gain some time because you see that my word is final. If you don't tell me the dream, there is one decree for you. You have conspired to tell me something false or fraudulent until the situation changes. So tell me the dream and I will know you can give me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king, no one on earth can make known what the king requests. Consequently, no king, however great and powerful, has ever asked anything like this of any diviner priest, medium, or Chaldean. What the king is asking is so difficult that no one can make it known to him except the gods, lowercase g, whose dwelling is not with mortals. Because of this, the king became violently angry and gave orders to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. The decree was issued and the wise men were to be executed and they searched for Daniel and his friends to execute him, to execute them. So Daniel and his friends are part of this wisdom cohort. They had been taken, they had excelled in their studies and they're part of this group who is going to get killed because As a group, they are unable to respond to the king's request. Now, the king's request is this. He he has this dream. He does not understand it. And it actually says that that, um, he had dreams that troubled him and sleep deserted him. So just think of the most powerful person in the world who is not, who woke up on the wrong side of the bed. And you go, what's he going to do now? Because he had ultimate authority. He didn't have to go to a court. He didn't have to go to trial. If the king said it, it happened. And so he's disturbed. He goes to the people whom he goes to for these kind of things. He, he goes to diviner priests. Diviner priests uh, are, are basically horoscope readers, as in drawing magical lines or circles. It's someone that reads the world to find answers to the cosmos. He calls mediums or exorcists. Someone who claims to breach at will the veil between the physical and the spiritual world and to speak to those beyond the veil. He, he calls sorcerers, men, men who profess to have power with evil spirits from a word. It comes from a word which means to whisper a spell, enchant, or practice magic or witchcraft. He goes to the Chaldeans. Now, the word Chaldeans can refer to a general group of people uh, in the Chaldea region, um, or it can refer more specifically to experts in the land of Chaldea. And the land of Chaldea is the chief seat of astrological and astronomical knowledge. In other words, he's going to the best of the best of the people at his time who serve the dark forces of this earth. And he goes to them and they've got nothing. Now, typically a king would go to them and he would say, I have seen this, or I have heard this. Tell me what it means. And and part of their training was to read certain things and and to say, hmm, that symbol could be this and this and this. What the king does is he goes to them and he wants to make sure that they're not just giving him a a load of um, firewood. I don't know where that analogy came from, but he wants to make sure that, they, that they're just not giving him something because they're like, our, our life is a danger here. He wants to make sure that what they're going to tell him is accurate. And so he figures that if they really know what they're talking about, if they really have the power that they say they have, then they'll be able to tell me my dream and what it meant. 
And you see this interchange go back and forth a couple times. He says, tell me the dream and what it meant. They said, tell us the dream. We'll tell you what it meant. And he goes, no, 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 no. Uh, you tell me the dream and what it meant. And I'll be able to tell whether or not you're telling me the truth, whether or not you know the dream. That's what's going on in verse nine. So tell me the dream and I will know that you give me its, in, that you can give me its interpretation. He's gone to the chief level of everybody in the land and even in the world at this time to discern something of wisdom and something of power. And he's disturbed. He's a bit of a crazy guy, which we'll talk about Nebuchadnezzar more over the next several weeks. He's a bit of a crazy guy. And yet God is speaking to him. God is intervening in history to say, Nebuchadnezzar, I want you to hear something. I want you to hear who you are. I want you to hear who everyone else is. And I want you to see how I'm Lord over it all. Now, it's, it's interesting. In calling these people, he finds their wisdom inadequate. This is what happens when we take a humanist ideology and we say, oh yeah, we can explain everything without God. We do this today. Tarot card readers, magicians, exorcists. It doesn't take long to look into our culture and to see how we seek for wisdom. We seek for meaning. We seek for purpose from things that are not Jesus. So the king goes to the systems that were created by men. He goes to them and he says, tell me, and I will reward you greatly. And they go, we've got nothing. They actually get a little bit bold with him. Imagine you're a group of Chaldeans and you say to the king of the known world, no one on earth can make known what the king requests, <laughs> right? That takes a little bit of chutzpah. Um, consequently, no king, however great and powerful, has ever asked anything like this. They do a little bit of calling him out on this, but he is, um, he's not dissuaded. And what we find uh, is, is at the end of verse 13, he's searching for everyone to have them executed. The theological center verse of this first 13 verses, I, I don't know if you underline in your Bible. I have Bibles I underline in because I, I make them basically study notes for, for my own study. The, the, the verse I want you to note here is verse 11. What they say to him is this, what the king is asking is so difficult that no one can make it known to him except the gods. So they've got one thing right. No one can make this known to him. They say, except the gods, lowercase g. So they got one thing wrong because they think that the gods can somehow do this without a full understanding about God. Um, and then they also say this, whose dwelling is not with mortals. Their idea and their view of God or the gods is that they're completely separate from humanity. And, and this is seen in, to some extent. I showed you the photo of the ziggurat last week. You've got this big temple and on top of this big, essentially, mountain with staircases going up and down. And up at the temple part, way up at the top, center of the city, that's where the gods believe to have kind of come back and forth between the heavens. We were, we were, we've been reading together as a church through the Bible this year. And a verse caught my eye as I was getting ready for this this week. They say, the gods whose dwelling is not with mortals. 
let me bring to your recollection, if you've been reading with us, we just finished Exodus. I haven't read today, but we finished Exodus today. Um, Notice what God says in Exodus 25. The, The people view gods as far off and high and powerful. And Yahweh says this in Exodus 25. He says, build me a sanctuary. Build me a sanctuary that I might dwell in the midst of you. That I might dwell in the midst of you. The people who are off in a faraway land in exile are people who feel forgotten. They feel as though God has left them. Some of them have been faithful in this time. Some of them have just turned their back on God. Maybe they don't even care. But God has taken them off and God will bring them back, he promises. Because he's a God who dwells. I don't know what your image or your understanding of God is. But let me tell you this, over and over and over in the scriptures, beginning in Genesis, when God walks with Adam and Eve in a sinless world in the cool of the day, all the way to the end of Revelation, when God rebuilds a city, he makes a new city. It says there in Revelation, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them. He will be their God and they will be his people and almighty God will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eye. Death, crying, and pain will exist no longer because the former things have passed away. God says, then there's the one who's seated on the throne who says, I make everything new. The God of the people of Babylon is a God who is far off. The God, Yahweh, is a God who is near. Some of us need to remember that today. We're walking through challenges. God is near to you. Take that truth to the bank. There's your first section. Second section is this. Pick up in verse 14 with me, please. Then Daniel responded with tact and discretion to Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, who had gone out to execute the wise men of Babylon. He asked Arioch, the king's officer, why is the decree from the king so harsh? Then Arioch explained the situation to Daniel. So Daniel went and asked the king to give him some time so that he could give the king the interpretation. Then Daniel went to his house. He told his friends Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah about the matter, urging them to ask the God of heaven for mercy concerning this mystery. So Daniel and his friends would not be killed with the rest of Babylon's wise men. The mystery was then revealed to Daniel in a vision at night. And Daniel praised the God of heaven and he declared, this is his prayer, this is his worship. May the God, may the name of God be praised forever and ever. For wisdom and power belong to him. He changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals the deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and light dwells with him. I offer thanks and praise to you, God of my fathers, because you have given me wisdom and power. And you have, and now you have let me know what we asked of you, and you have let us know the king's mystery." Therefore, Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had assigned to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He came and said to him, don't kill the wise men of Babylon. Bring me before the king and I will give him the interpretation. All right. 
as Arioch, the executioner, comes to get Daniel and his friends, Daniel responds with tact and discretion. And he says, why is this so harsh? Daniel's trying to seek to understand what's going on. He probably doesn't know the whole story yet. So Arioch, um, you know, an executioner explains, hey, here's why I'm going to take off your head. All right, that's my job, right? Go team. Um, and, and notice how Daniel responds. It says that he responds with tact and discretion. One of the words your translation might say for, for one of those is wisdom. D- Daniel expresses and engages in wisdom in how he does this. He, he doesn't just fight or flight. He, he, he doesn't tear down the guy who's going to take his head off. He says, help me understand what's going on here. Can you imagine being so calm when you're preparing to um, be executed? (laughs) It's imminent. He goes, hey, hey, hey." and wisdom is a part of how Daniel operates. um, This idea of wisdom is not having the correct answer, all right? Sometimes we confuse knowledge and wisdom. Knowledge is knowing things, right? It's having information. Wisdom is the ability to use the knowledge we have in an appropriate way for the benefit of those around us and for the benefit of the situation. It, it's, wisdom is rightly applied knowledge. Or knowledge. Wisdom is rightly applied knowledge. Yes, that's the way I want to say it. It's rightly applied knowledge. And the word wisdom is related to the Hebrew word, which means to taste. Okay? It, it means to taste. Um, one writer puts it this way. It's a high, wisdom is a highly developed sense of God's ways. Learning through obedience to God's word. Wisdom isn't defined by the age, but by whether we are sensitive to the working of God in our midst and we are obedient to his ways. So, so there are people um, in this world who like coffee. How many people like coffee in the room? Bless you. How many people don't? Bless you. Yes. Um, when I was traveling this last year, um, sometimes you, you drink what's available, right? That's just how it rolls. So here I have a two-in-one um, packet of coffee. And I'll just read you the first um, ingredient. Whey powder from milk, coffee creamer, hydrogenated coconut oil, stabilizers. Coffee somehow comes into this at some point in time. Um, when you're desperate, you drink whatever, right? But then you have coffee, right? I promise I won't drink all of this before you. Um, one of the things I love is coffee. And, and as you grow in your love for something, whether it's coffee, whether it's food, whether it's uh, you, you name it, um, you have this growing ability to, to taste and to savor what is before you. And, and part of that is, is the idea of wisdom. Not that wisdom's coffee, but just go with me with the analogy. If I were to pour this in a cup and I were to pour hot water in it, you might be like, yeah, that kind of resembles coffee. But if I were to pour this, you would go. I, at least I would go. I shouldn't presume for you. Uh, some of you would go, Ugh. Others of you would go, that's coffee. This was roasted last week from beans from a couple different countries. It's freshly brewed this morning. It's very different than this. This is a much more refined version of this. If you like this, not a problem, not a big deal. The idea is this. Daniel is someone who has grown in his wisdom as God has worked in his life. He doesn't just look at coffee as something hot, something that resembles, some of you might say like mud or something, burned. That's not what that smells like, in my opinion. Um, 
Daniel has a keen sense of awareness of what God is doing. Even if he doesn't have all the answers, he's learned and is learning this practice of wisdom and discernment. He's trusting God to meet him where he lacks. He has a highly developed sense of God's ways, and he's already decided in his life he's going to choose what's right and what is good, what honors God and his word, and he's not going to go for the cheaper imitations of what people might call life. Daniel takes this in wisdom. He says, let me speak to the king. He asked for a little bit of time. Notice verse, what, what verse 17 says. It says, Daniel went to his house and he told his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah about the matter. I love that he goes to friends. He's got godly friends who want to honor Yahweh and live for Yahweh in their context. And he knows he can't go alone. So he says, friends, we need to pray. Friends, there are moments in our life where we need to go to those couple people and we need to say, look, I'm facing this. We need to pray. Right? We, we, we do. We, we don't need to hold it inside. We need to pull around us the godly people in our lives and say, would you intercede for me? Would God have heard Daniel's prayer alone? Yeah, I think he would have. But Daniel knows he can't be alone. He needs the body around him. He, he needs the people of God around him. And not to mention, all those three guys were also on the same chopping block. So he probably wanted to let them know, hey, here's what's going on. But notice what he says in verse 18. He urges them to ask the God of heaven for mercy concerning this mystery. I just love that he, his prayers for mercy, his prayers for something he doesn't deserve, but he asks God boldly, God, would you be merciful to us? God, would you show your compassion and your grace towards us? Sometimes we go in our prayers and we go to God with a high hand, right? We, we, we go with a sense of, I deserve this. And I think the, the, the longer we walk with God, the more we recognize we don't deserve anything. But God in his mercy has given us so much. He's given us Jesus. He's given us all these things that we don't deserve. God, he's asking the God of heaven, not the gods of the earth, but the God of heaven for mercy concerning the mystery so that they wouldn't be killed. So he does care about his life. But, but notice the theological center I want to point you to here. Um, the mystery was then revealed to Daniel in a vision at night. Nice to have a fairly quick, seemingly quick response from the Lord. And notice what Daniel does. His first thing is not to go, hey, king, by the way, I got it now. The first thing that happens is Daniel prays the God of heaven. He stops. Like, I, maybe he praised as he was going on the way, you know? <laughs> There's a lot at stake here. But his thankfulness and his gratitude did not outpace his request. Requests matter to God. But adoration and thanksgiving are absolutely fundamental for the life of a believer. And, and he goes, look at how many verses he uses. Like, this is written on a scroll in ancient times. So if someone wrote something down, you're like, man, that took work. And it's copied, and it took work. Notice how many verses Scripture gives to his 
declaration of praise. May the name of God be praised forever for wisdom and power belong to him. He changes times and seasons. You can imagine him maybe singing a song here. He removes kings and he establishes kings. He gives wisdom to the wise, knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and light dwells with him. I offer thanks and praise to you, God, my fathers, because you have given me wisdom and power. Wisdom and power are always things that come from God. He, he highlights this. Wisdom, power, wisdom, power. The world thinks they have wisdom and power. And what Daniel is saying is, you may be in the most powerful kingdom on the earth. You may have all the seat of all the smart people around you, but guess where wisdom and power come that truly matter? From the God of heaven. Three verses, two, three, three and a half verses of praise. His praise outpaces his request. And he goes to Arioch, hopefully quickly, and he says, don't kill the wise men of Babylon. Bring me before the king, and I will give him the interpretation. I love what scripture says in 1 Corinthians 1. It says that Christ is God's wisdom and power. The power and wisdom that we need for everyday life, we have made available to us through Jesus. Bless you, Lord. Thank you, God. That's the second section. If you want to highlight the important theological center, it's verses 20 through 23. It's this incredible prayer and praise. Third section. Then Arioch, verse 25, quickly brought Daniel before the king and said to him, I found a man among the Judean exiles who can let the king know the interpretation. The king said in reply to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, are you able to tell me the dream I had and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king, no wise man, medium, diviner, priest, astrologer is able to make known the king, the mystery he asked about. I love that the king says, are you able to do this? And he says, no, no one can. <laughs> no one can. He doesn't even take credit himself. Notice what he does take credit for, or notice where he puts the credit towards. Verse 28, the theological center of this third section, but there is a God in heaven. It's not, but there is a, a, a prophet named Daniel or a servant named Daniel. It says, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries and he has let King Nebuchadnezzar know what will happen in the last days. We'll talk more about the phrase last days another time. He says, your dream and the vision that came into your mind as you lay in bed were these. Your majesty, while you were in bed, thoughts came to your mind about what will happen in the future. The revealer of mysteries has let you know what will happen. As for me, this mystery has been revealed to me. Right? It doesn't originate with him. It's been revealed to him, not because I have more wisdom than anyone living, but in order that the interpretation might be made known to the king and that you might understand the thoughts of your mind. Just think, God cares so much about the thoughts of the most pagan ruler and the pagan king in the world at this time that he's willing to give him a bad dream and he's willing to have Daniel write in place to say, king, here's what God wants you to know. That's mercy. That, 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 that's grace. This is a God who reveals mystery. No one else can tell the, the mystery of God except God himself. There is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. I love as we've been reading through Exodus, one of the things we've found is that Yahweh reveals himself and he comes to his people, but he doesn't just reveal himself to Moses. So, sometimes he reveals himself to um, 70 elders. He's a God who's working in their midst. He's revealing himself to a nation. 
God is revealing more than, uh, more than the present to the king. He's going to reveal what will happen in last days. And, and God is revealing predictive prophecy to the king through Daniel that he will show, that will show Nebuchadnezzar's earthly kingdom, other kingdoms, and the eternal kingdom of God, which is where section four leads us to, verse 31. My king, he says, as you were watching, a colossal statue appeared. That statue, tall and dazzling, was standing in front of you, and its appearance was terrifying. The head of the statue was pure gold. Its chest and arms were silver. Its stomach and thighs were bronze. Its legs were iron, and its feet were partly iron and partly fired clay. As you were watching, a stone broke off without a hand touching it, struck the statue on the feet of the iron, and fired clay and crushed them. Then the iron, the fired clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were shattered, and they became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away, and not a trace could be found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. Your majesty, you are king of kings. The God of heaven has given you sovereignty, power, and authority. Wherever people live, or wild animals, or birds of the air, he has handed them over to you and made you ruler over them all. You are the head of gold. After you, there will arise another kingdom, inferior to yours, and then another, a third kingdom of bronze, which will rule the whole earth. A fourth kingdom will be as strong as iron, for iron crushes and shatters everything. And like iron that smashes, it will crush and smash all the others. You saw the feet and toes, partly of a potter's fired clay and partly of iron. It will be a divided kingdom, though some of the strength of iron will be in it. You saw the iron mixed with clay, and that the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly fired clay. Part of the kingdom will be strong, and part will be brittle. You saw the iron mixed with clay. The peoples will mix with one another, but will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay." Here's your theological center for this long section. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. And this kingdom will not be left to another people. It will crush all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, but will itself endure forever. Endure forever. You saw a stone break off from the mountain without a hand touching it, and it crushed the iron, bronze, fire, clay, silver, and gold. The great God has told you it has told the king what will happen in the future. The dream is true, and its interpretation is certain. All right? So, so there's this long section where uh, Nebuchadnezzar is faced with this dream. There's a gold head. All right? It's a person. You know, it's a statue. There's a gold head. You are the head of gold, he says. So, so there's a direct interpretation going on right here in the text. You are the head of gold. Then there's the silver chest and arms. There's the bronze stomach and thighs, the iron legs, and then the iron and clay feet. All right, typically, uh, and there's some conversation among scholars, but here's the way this is typically understood, and I think this is the clearest way, and we can talk about it more in detail later because of the time. The gold head is Nebuchadnezzar, right? That's directly in the text. When we look at history, we look at the silver chest and arms, and we have media Persia. 
That's the other kingdom that comes to take the place of Nebuchadnezzar. Then there's another kingdom that arises that comes over all the earth, and that's Greece through Alexander the Great. After that, you come to the Iron Kingdom, and you have this kingdom of Rome that shatters and smashes everything within its sight. But even Rome eventually falls, and you have this iron and clay feet, a divided kingdom that will not hold together but still has some moments of strength. Here's the point. You have all these kingdoms, kingdom after kingdom after kingdom, Some of these kingdoms have things that have happened in the world to this day that that still we practice because it's part of a Roman kingdom or it's part of a Grecian kingdom. However, all these kingdoms have ends. And this is the the message he's giving him. By the way, you're going to have all these kingdoms. There's going to be one coming after you. You're going to be the head of gold, you know. Thank you, Lord, that you gave him a head of gold and not like feet of clay, because what does a crazy king do when he's told to use feet of clay? I don't know. That's just my thinking. Um, you have all these different kingdoms, but what happens is that there's a stone, and a stone comes, and it's not touched by human hands, and it comes, and it smashes. And it doesn't just smash. It obliterates. It says that it turns it into like chaff. I don't know if you know chaff. Chaff comes off coffee, actually. And, and after you're done, you can literally throw it up in the air, and it just blows away because it's, it's, it's not worth anything. What he's saying is you've got all these kingdoms that are going to come. Predictive prophecy. And yet there's going to be a kingdom who's going to come, and it's going to establish And no other kingdom is ever going to cross this kingdom because this is going to be a forever kingdom. We'll talk more about this kingdom in weeks to come. But I love what Jesus says in Matthew chapter six. He says this, because we can be about kingdoms on this earth. Even today, we can be about kingdoms of nations and all this kind of stuff, just like they were back in the time. Jesus says this in Matthew 6. He says, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. I think he's tying into this bit of God's eternal kingdom. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven because where your treasure is, what we value most, the kingdom that we seek, defines our priorities. A couple verses later in in the Sermon on the Mount there, he will actually say, seek first the kingdom of heaven and its righteousness. And all these things that you worry about on earth will be added to you. Seek first that which matters, the eternal kingdom of God. The last section, very quickly here, this is the shortest section. What we have in verses 46 through 49 goes like this. Then King Nebuchadnezzar, he fell down and he paid homage to Daniel and he gave orders to present an offering and incense to him. The king said to Daniel, your God is indeed God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries. Since you were able to reveal this mystery, then the king promoted Daniel, gave him many generous gifts. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and chief governor over all the wise men of Babylon. And at Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to manage the province of Babylon. But the king, or but Daniel remained at the king's court. You see Nebuchadnezzar come through on his promise. Look, if you, if you, anyone in this kingdom can answer my dream and what it means, I will give him so much. I love it though, because um, Daniel says, it's not me who gives you this dream. It's God who gave me this dream to give to you. But notice what King Nebuchadnezzar does. He fell, falls down and he pays homage to Daniel. 
Now, this falls down, that word there is going to be used um, a lot of times. I think it's 20 times. I may not have written it down in my notes. Um, I think it's about 20 times in chapter 3. Because in chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar is going to build this statue that he wants everybody to come down and fall down in worship to. Here we have the king fall down, ascribe some sort of worship to Daniel. And he declares this, your God is indeed God of gods, Lord of kings, and revealer of mysteries, since you were able to reveal this mystery. Here's what one writer said, and, and I love it. He said this, he said, notice Nebuchadnezzar is in awe of God, right? He, he's in awe of God. He recognizes that there are some things that God has been able to answer that he and all the people in his kingdom could not answer with their own wisdom and their own power. He's in awe of God, but notice what he does not do. He does not seek God's mercy. When Daniel's faced with his life, he goes and he seeks the mercy of God because he knows his real king is not Nebuchadnezzar, it's Yahweh. Nebuchadnezzar comes along and ascribes this bit of importance to Daniel. And he's in awe of Daniel's God, but he doesn't seek God for mercy. And chapter 3 is going to tell the story of, of a high-handed, proud king who is humbled yet again because the wisdom that he thought he had and the power that he thought he had were nothing compared to Yahweh. Have you sought God's mercy in your life? Have you sought God's mercy in your life? You may be in awe of God here today, but you may never have given your life over to the king who is king of kings and lord of lords. And you do that by seeking God's mercy. I said it yesterday at the funeral, by, by, by repenting of our sins, because we've all sinned and we've all fallen short of God's glory. But God demonstrated his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. A couple verses later in Romans chapter 10, it says, and everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. In other words, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord and asks for mercy for their sin, God grants it. God grants it. The, the, the true and the humble and the right ask. It's not about magic. It's not about power. It's about humility and recognizing that without God, we are nothing. Have you asked God for mercy for your sin? Have you come into a, a relationship with God? Chapter 2 begins with Nebuchadnezzar being um, very proud, very disturbed, and not having peace. Daniel, who's on the other end of the sword, literally, is someone who is engaged with this relationship with God such that he has peace, even in the midst of whatever might happen to him. God's peace can be ours today through Jesus. You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee because he trusts thee. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything with prayer and thanksgiving, present your request to God and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. But there's one way to have true peace with God, and that's through Jesus Christ. Crucified, raised to life for us.
It's the best news I could share with you today. The message to Daniel, to the Jewish people, even to the king, is that God is indeed at work in his people. Even when they're in exile, he is working in the heart of the the most powerful king of the world. Wisdom comes from God. Power comes from God for everything we need. It doesn't come from the nations. It doesn't come from the world. It comes by saying, God, would you work in and through me for your glory? Our Father and our King, how thankful we are, God, that you have met us with mercy, that you have met us with grace, that God, in our greatest need, you stepped into history because you are God who comes to dwell. You are a God who does not stand far off, distant. You're a God who comes because you care about us. You care about every person made in your image. And God, we come this morning just saying thank you. How good you have been to us. God, how good you have been to this world. And amidst the continued rebellion against you, the continued sin against you, God, you have shown your mercy time and time again. We know there's a day coming in which you will rule and reign as judge and king of this world. But God, we, we, pray for, we pray for our lives to be found faithful with you today. God, we pray for friends and for family members who are far from you. God, that you would bring them, that you would reveal yourself to them, that they would hear the word of the Lord, sense the Spirit's movement in their life, and, and understand how much they are dearly loved by you. And God, that they would respond in repentance and faith. In you, God, there is forgiveness of sin. In you, Father, we find all we need. We bless you in the name of Jesus, our Messiah and our Redeemer. And together we say, amen. Thanks for listening. We hope that what you heard inspires you to take the next step in your faith. If you have questions about this message or would like more information about our church, we invite you to check us out at fbczealand.org or call us at 616-772-4377.